Welcome to SCU Buzz Podcast. I'm River, and today we'll be exploring Australia's relationship to homelessness and housing vulnerability. Joining me is Dr. Gregory P. Smith, a lecturer in the social sciences and author of the memoirs, Out of the Forest and Better Than Happiness, The True Antidote to Discontent. After experiencing homelessness himself, Gregory isolated himself from society in the rainforests of the Northern Rivers for a decade. He found purpose in education and went on to complete his PhD focusing on issues faced by adults who experience out-of-home care. He is the director of N Street Sleeping Collaboration and evaluator of the New South Wales Premier's Priority Pilot for Homelessness. In 2023, he was awarded a Medal of the Order of Australia for his service to the community through social welfare organisations. Welcome to the podcast, Gregory. It's great to have you with us. Thanks, River, and uh, thanks for inviting me. So you've lived a very unique life as outlined in your novels. Would you be able to tell me a little bit about yourself and the path you've taken to education? I'll give it a go. Uh, look, I consider myself to be a very wealthy human being in terms of lived experience. I think the uh, diversity of my lived experience has given me some the ability to have deep insights into different situations um, right across the, the platform. I think, yeah, like that transition from vulnerability into having a purpose in life is about, you know, that desire not to be who you are anymore. And I think that desire needs to be powerful enough to make, yeah, you know, where you, you're instigated to make decisions to change who you are. And that can be very, just a really nuanced approach to making decisions each day. But the most important thing is maintaining a commitment to change who you are. So if you can do that, uh, you're on the right path. So what, what inspired you to change who you were and to digress your path? Yeah, that's a good question. What inspired me? Um, pain? Misery, shame, stigma, yeah, you know, all those negative connotations that we associate with um, a not happy life. Or, you know, so it's once, yeah, you know, once you get to a point and you think, I don't want to be like this anymore. Yeah. You know? um, then there's a little, there's a little window of opportunity right there. If you know, you're thinking, I don't want to be like this anymore. It's not that easy to just change who you are. The first thing that needs to happen is to understand who you are and what's making you miserable or what's creating the issues in your life. For me, I learned that I was the biggest problem in my life. You know, um, and that was about not taking responsibility for who I was, for my actions, too readily blaming others, including institutions, for my circumstance. So I had to understand that to be able to change it. And once I could begin to understand what was going on, then I could start to make those little incremental changes each day. So you've done quite a lot of research regarding homelessness in Australia. Would you be able to tell us a little bit about that research and what your findings were? Yeah, sure. Well, my first research project 
was actually my honours degree, which I entitled that I'd like to tell you a story, but I'm not sure if I can. And the purpose of that name was because at that time, this is in two, you know, the early 2000s, 2007, there were a lot of people experiencing homelessness that weren't, they didn't feel that they could talk about it. There was too much shame and stigma uh, around rough sleeping, around being homeless. Um, it really wasn't in the public discourse at the time. Uh, we were aware of it, but it wasn't a conversation, not like it is today. I followed that up with um, my PhD, which really did explore forgotten Australians. And forgotten Australians, in essence, are similar to the stolen generation. The qualification around that is that they, the forgotten Australians are uh, Australian-born, non-Indigenous people. So we had the Stolen Generations report, but then we had the Forgotten Australians report as, a, as a, an equivalent to that. And what I found in, in that research was upwards of um, 60% of those people were had uh, experienced long-term homelessness at some time in their life. So that sparked some, you know, some interest in um, this this idea that people were homeless because of their own situations or their own fault. So I, I've explored that ever since. And what my findings are now that usually the main instigators of homelessness are domestic violence, especially for women, women escaping domestic violence. Um, and there's just not enough help out there for young young mums and even, even uh, older women escaping domestic violence. There's a, there's a stigma attached to that as well, which is a very sad situation in this country. But mental health issues is also a massive factor, financial stress. And we're seeing more of that financial um, stress as a, as a cause of vulnerability or homeless or housing uh, housing risk at the moment, especially with the cost of living, the interest rates, mortgage stress, and things like this. You know, if you if you're listening to the reports coming out each day, um, you know you're hearing there's an increase, almost almost weekly increase in people defaulting on in their mortgages. Yeah, where do they go? What happens to them? There's this massive increase, especially around the Northern Rivers area. Uh, Southeast Queensland, Northern Rivers, there's this uh, really big cohort, a growing cohort of self-famous people, um, which, if it's okay, it just brings me to um, a point that in, in November this year, I'll be hosting, or myself and a couple other people will be hosting a documentary on women over 50, homeless women over 55 around that region as well. Mm. Do you, did you find um, within the Northern Rivers itself, I mean, the Northern Rivers is known to, as quite a tourist destination and quite an affluent area, especially when we're looking at places like Byron Bay and along the coast. Are you finding that there is quite a divide between between people who have housing in, say, towns in the Northern Rivers like Byron Bay and Brunswick Heads and Lennox, Lennox Head and the homeless community and population? And have you noticed a growth in either of those communities in the past few years? 
Um, well, we've definitely noticed a growth in um, in homeless people experiencing homelessness and rough sleeping. Absolutely have. During the pandemic, um, the New South Wales government sort of increased funding around, especially around Byron Bays and uh, Tweed Heads, Brunswick Heads, to accommodate or to put in temporary accommodation people experiencing rough sleeping. The problem with that is, in my view, um, although it did help quite a few people, it also made others even more vulnerable because what happened was all, all many, uh, having good intentions and well-meaning, uh, people were taken off the streets and put into temporary accommodation, i.e. motels. But as most of us know, motels have very strict rules around what you can do, what you can't do, who you can have there, what you, and who you can't have there. People, you know, um, with mental health issues such as addictions, psychosis, and other, you know, other forms of mental illness, were finding that they were in conflict with the systems. You know, because they're putting them in these rooms, they say they're saying you can't cook, you can't smoke, you can't drink, you can't have friends, you can't have your pets. All these rules, uh, which were setting these people up to fail. And once they were thrown out, they had, a, they had a black mark against their name. So, and that made it difficult for them a little bit further along. So, all credit to the, the general population around the Northern Rivers. There is a very good and deep understanding of the, of the social vulnerability and the social issues concerning homelessness in that area. And I think because... Um, look, there's a very, uh, I think that area is especially attuned to the various social issues that happen right across the, the breadth and width of our society. Yeah. So you, you mentioned briefly just then as well, um, the pandemic and the pandemic's role in housing and housing security and homelessness. Have you noticed over the past few decades that reason for homelessness, like you, you've also mentioned social issues and domestic violence, mental health as big, big factors in people becoming homeless and experiencing housing insecurity. Have you noticed over the last few decades, a change or a shift or an increase of homelessness due to worldwide pandemics, climate change, or more contemporary reasons that are attributing to homelessness? Um, I have a river. Uh, I think the biggest change is population migration. Um, so, you know, the exodus from the metropolitan areas into uh, rural regional areas. But that in itself is not the main issue. I mean, that's the, that's the effect. The cause is a lack of funding in, in, in social housing and infrastructure. So this is a this is a decades long. Well, it would actually look if, if I'm absolutely candid on this. This situation was set up in between 1996 and 2006. So that that ten year period when the uh, I will get a little bit political here, but it's just the simple reality of um, of what's going on, and people don't 
really stop to have a look deep enough into the politics of what's happening now. And at that time, um, the coalition government came into power and started to change policies. They stopped funding social housing. They stopped a lot of funding on um, national infrastructure, things like that. They provided mainstream uh, funding for to, to sort of uh, satisfy the middle classes. You know, and the middle classes were more concerned with balancing the budget, shall we say, rather than investing in infrastructure and looking after the, the more vulnerable. So as a direct result of those policy shifts, over the decades we have seen the whole idea of social housing collapse. And in the OECD countries, Australia is ranked right down the very bottom of funding for social housing and looking after that uh, that cohort down there. That is the main issue. Now, um, people with um, experiencing mental health issues, sometimes they just don't have the skills, the life skills or the skills, or they've lost the skills temporarily or whatever, to be able to go on out and find a house. If those places were still available to them, they would more likely than not be able to maintain a reasonably healthy lifestyle. Mm. So do you think as well, just earlier you mentioned uh, migration from metropolitan areas into regional areas. What are the differences between homelessness in regional and rural areas versus homelessness within metropolitan city areas? Um, well, that's a really good question. And there are stark differences. And that's something we, and I, the reason I say it's a really good question is because that's not something a lot of people even think about. So, yeah, I mean, to explore that is, um, is really important because transport's your, your first issue. In the, in the metropolitan areas, yeah, you can get around to various soup kitchens and there's lots of them, or various homeless services and there's lots of them. And you can, yeah, you can make your ends meet. Now, an interesting thing there is that in the city, if you're doing that, you actually have a full day. You have a purpose in your life. So you're actually doing things. You're getting on a bus or, you, you know, you're going somewhere. In a, in a regional rural area, it's completely different. Now, if you've got to travel from, say, Byron Bay to Brunswick Heads, um, that's not just, you know, a, you know, there's not a bus that goes there every every half hour or so. You've, you've, got, you've already got to plan it. Uh, you don't just go down to the bus stop and wait for the next bus and jump on and go. And that happens in the metropolitan areas. So in in the regional rural areas, if you don't have the capacity to plan and organise your day, you can find yourself stranded without a meal, without a bed. So there are big differences. I mean, that's just one example. I mean, the other is, you know, is the access to um, to specialist services. Um, there's a you know, lots of services in the cities, lots of soup kitchens in the cities. The community of homelessness or rough sleepers in the city is much larger. So you have a network of people that feed you all the all the latest goss, all the news. Yeah, that does happen in regional areas, but it's a little bit slower. That was going to be my next question for you was asking about the network of the homeless community and how important it is as well, or 
yeah, I guess as well, the differences between homeless networking and community in, again, metropolitan areas versus regional rural areas. Again, this is a, there's, there's one thing that I think is really important to understand about rough sleeping and homelessness, and that's the complexity of the issue. And that's something that we really don't take a deep dive into. Now, with with rough sleeping communities, it's especially so because if a person becomes or you know um, vulnerable, they lose their house, they become a rough sleeper. That's a really scary, really, really scary situation, and the dread, uh, the fear, the horror, the insecurity, the shame, and stigma that are attached to that can be soul destroying. If a person is not doesn't have uh, access to early intervention, if they're not placed very early, i.e., the first couple of weeks, yeah, and they can real re have an opportunity to rebuild their life, then what tends to happen is they become members of these little communities, these rough sleeping communities. That becomes their whole world, and once they're solid. Uh, in that camaraderie, in those in those communities, they don't want to leave. There's a security in there. So it makes it much more difficult to transition them from that rough sleeping situation into permanent housing. And I mean, that's a very complex area as well. Understanding that uh, is something that um, we, need to, we need to do a lot more work around. Mm. Is, is, are there any projects, because I understand, or I, I can imagine that going from having such a supportive community around you whilst rough sleeping and, and experiencing homelessness can definitely alleviate some of the isolation that may lead to homelessness in the first place as well. And I can imagine that leaving that community to be in housing, which can be isolating, could be quite jarring and quite scary for some people. Are there any programs or housing housing systems in place where people experiencing rough sleeping can integrate into housing that isn't isolated or isn't, say, a one-bedroom, one-person unit? Yeah. Um, look, I wouldn't say there are specific programs for that. What I would say is that there are Workers, qualified workers, social workers, community workers, uh, specialist groups that are aware of these problems and try to work with someone to balance out the issues as well. Um, I think we still have a lot of work in those areas to do. But again, that's about that, you know, working uh, with those issues again, comes down to housing stock. So if the appropriate dwelling is not there, then it makes it very difficult you know, for, uh, for, for these things to be mitigated. Absolutely. So you are the director of N Street Sleeping Collaboration and the evaluator of the New South Wales Premier's Priority Pilot for Homelessness. Can you tell me about these roles and what they involve? Um, yeah, okay, sure. The first one, um, the N Street Sleeping Collaboration. I'm a director. There are 
I think, 12 directors. So I'm one of the directors. I'm uh, The directors consist of the CEOs of the, of the big groups, uh, the CEO of Wesley Mission, CEO of New South Wales Salvation Army, St. Vincent's, uh, Jewish House, uh, Nimoy, all these peak body groups. Uh, I'm, the, I'm the little guy sitting in the corner. My representation there is lived experience and, um, and as an academic. So my remit there is to yell and scream every time I think they're talking about crap. And I tend to do a lot of yelling and screaming. But so the purpose of the Entrustage Sleeping Collaboration is to um, inform these peak bodies of um, what, what the situation are in a given time. We've developed a database that's called the By Names List. The idea of the by names list is if a person chooses to, to fully consent to be on, and I, I emphasize fully con informed consent, to be a part of that by names list, they only ever have to tell this story once because we load that data into that by names list. Then if a person, say, for example, um, they register in Redfern, New South Wales, um, is at risk of homelessness or, or rough sleeping, and they have been allocated a um, a worker or, or an organisation to help them, or they've chosen a um, uh, an organisation or a specialist service. Then, say they have a uh, an episode and a blackout, whatever, and then they find themselves in Byron Bay or Lismore. They only have to front to, say, Social Futures or Momentum Collective, Salvation Army, whatever. A social worker can only needs their name and date of birth. They can put that into the by names list and bring up their date. They don't have to tell their story again. They don't have to go through all that again. And straight away, the social worker can see, okay, you've been allocated these resources. You're entitled to this. You know, you don't want this to happen. You don't want these people to know. So all that information's there, and we can start to help them straight away. Uh, this database on the Barnes List actually won the Global Microsoft Award for its role in helping vulnerable people. So that's the Barnes List. Uh, look, I'm a I'm a specialist consultant as well to the Barnes List. So I work with the CEO and others on how to develop um, programs and policy and things like that with them. The Premier's priority, um, that's pretty much come to an end now, but um, basically um, Gladys Berejiklian had signed up to a global um, vanguard uh, of, I think it was about 14 cities, including Chicago, New York, Paris, London, Johannesburg. There were, there were quite a few cities there. Now she was approached to sign Sydney up to this vanguard. To her credit, she said, no, I won't sign Sydney up. You know, I represent a whole state of people. I will sign New South Wales. So um, that meant the objective of that vanguard was to make homelessness a single occurring event, short term, one and all, uh, by 2030. So you can, I don't think you can ever end 
rough sleeping. There will always be people that fall out of the system, fall through the system, have you know, have situations that they they themselves find difficult to explain. But that experience does not have to be ongoing. It doesn't have to be you know three months, twelve months, yet years. It should only be very short until the system can pick them up, um, provide them with their needs, whether you know, whether that's medical, uh, mental, physical health, whatever, financial, whatever, you know, and then system back into a secure, into secure living. And so you mentioned a little bit earlier um, being the voice in the room with lived experience of homelessness and rough sleeping. How important is it to have lived experience voices within policymaking and organizations that, that help to assist homeless and rough sleepers? If you were going to do your tax, how important is it to have someone understanding tax systems to help you? If you were going to go to a doctor, how important is it that the doctor have some experience in medical procedures? One of the issues is that Politicians have been making policy for people that they have no idea of. Politicians making policy for young people without consulting young people. Politicians making policy around women's rights without consulting women. And one of the issues is if you don't have somebody with the experience in there that is a consultant, yeah, you're just working on speculation. You're not working on evidence. Well, I work with quite a few lived expertise. So these are people who are not... There's a difference between lived experience. I mean, every single human being that has lived a life has lived experience. So there's lots of different categories of lived experience. The difference between lived experience and lived expertise is a maturity between or a transition between uh, you know, if you uh, if you have trauma, and yeah, you have lived experience of trauma, then there's a transition from or going through that trauma, working with that trauma, understanding that trauma, to a point where that trauma no longer impacts your daily life. Then you can move forward. And if you want to become a consultant in in lived trauma, you become an expert. You know, lived trauma expertise. So there's a maturity in there as well understanding the issue. Policy that's being developed should consult the people that it's being developed to assist. Mm. Absolutely. So what actions can we as a society take to protect those who are most vulnerable and reduce the number of people sleeping rough? First thing is to understand the issue. And I'm not convinced we have enough. You know, we... We empath we tend you know as a society we are tending to empathize more with people sleeping rough now um, and that's only because of recent economic events so well, I mean it's a shame that it takes something like that for people to start actually seeing the issue but understanding that the issue I mean most of these people didn't dream of being rough sleepers and you know a burden on society when they were growing up when they were kids, you know, oh, when I grow up, I want to be a burden on society. That wasn't their, their passion and their dream. This has happened. So 
one of the things I think we need to be able to um, do in that understanding or with that understanding is have the resources there to assist people as, you know, whatever they are. And everybody's different. Understanding that everybody has different needs as well uh, is a really important thing. You know, there's no homogenized silo solution for this problem. It's a very individual problem. And that's a part of why we developed that by names list, because everybody has a different story and everybody hurts differently. Everybody experiences shame differently. Everybody's stigma is different. And the, yeah, the remedy to helping them is different. The recipe for assisting an individual is a little bit of this and a little bit of that and a different understanding for everyone. So it's, a, it's a, a, having those resources available. That's going to take time because we're so far behind, you know, decades behind in funding and understanding and development, social housing. Yeah. So if people in their everyday life wanted to assist homelessness and rough sleeping in their day-to-day, are there any organizations or groups that they can access uh, as a volunteer or as a participant to assist in, in caring for homeless people? Um, my qualification, yes, there are. But my qualification around that is make sure you have um, some training before you go and do that. I think that's really important. Trauma-informed care, trauma-informed practice, you know, trauma-informed understanding is really important here. But now if you have sort of gained those qualifications for yourself and you want to contribute, don't speak to, you know, um, places like St. Vincent's um, Momentum Collective, Social Futures. Go down and volunteer at the local soup kitchen, the Winsome Hotel. Yeah, you know, go and talk to the staff there and, and see, we see. I mean, they're always looking for volunteers there, I think. Um, but they're, yeah, go and volunteer at the soup kitchen. Yeah, Christmas Day, make yourself available. Go on to a soup kitchen and help serve some lunches. It's amazing what that does for the, for the spirit. You know, you don't have to um, be a hero or heroine. Yeah, just it, it's those little contributions that count mind. Mm, absolutely. So your recent book, Better Than Happiness, The True Antidote to Discontent, would you be able to tell us about what that book is about and what your experience was in in publishing that? Okay, thank you. Yeah. Um, okay, the first book uh, was called Out of the Forest. That was published by Penguin, Penguin Random House in two thousand and eighteen, and basically, that is the what. Okay, this is what happened to me. This is my experience. Yeah, this is my my battle with society, you know, and a very courageous battle it was, you know, but I lost, you know, and there's no shame in losing a battle. So that was the first book. The second book is The How. So how did I change my life? How did I recover from a life of trauma and devastation and turmoil? How did I turn that around? And this book sort of gives some short insights 
into what I did, my thinking at, at you know at different points, the importance of having uh, having an objective, having goals, setting goals, um, the importance of staying focused and understanding who I am, because if I lose track on who I am, then I you know I can't really guide other people. So it you know that the process of publication look it was pretty okay. Yeah, you know, it didn't take me very long to write, to be honest. Um, and it seems to be, I mean, it's very, very well received. So, um, yeah, that's really good. Yeah, it's what can I say about that? It's um, it's going great. Yeah, the first look, the first book, um, that's well, it's it's selling great in in the US and Europe as well. So, uh, yeah, that's t- the first book took me to the US. I've done conferences and uh, given talks right across Australia, the US. So, yeah. Wow. That's incredible to have your book become an international seller and to be able to extend your story overseas as well. How did that feel for you? So I would say in the first instance, I actually found it difficult to understand. It didn't really make sense to me. But it's the first book is used in universities in uh, South America, Brazil, uh, Europe, uh, Argentina, in different universities, in Australia, you know, Sydney University, University of Wollongong, as a mental health text. So I just find that amazing. Um, as is the TED Talk, as is Richard Feidler, well, Richard Feidler conversation was as well. But I just, you know, I'm, well, I guess I'm just accepting of it now. It, it is what it is. I mean, I'm very humbled and grateful that I've been able to make a contribution to help others walk walk away from their pain. You know, it doesn't work for everyone, and that's important to understand as well. But, yeah, the, the simple thing is if, you know, in our lives, if we can just help one or two people, that's a great achievement. That's important to be able to do that. So, you know, um, to be able to help more than one or two people is, is, uh, is now I feel very humbled. So earlier this year, you also received a medal of the order of Australia, which (laughs) you've been very busy this year. So would you be able to tell us what that medal is and what it felt to receive that medal? No, thank you. Um, what is the medal? The medal is an honors recognition for work that I've done uh, mainly to charities and other organisations, i.e. Um, my role at uh, and Street Sleeping, Sleeping Collaboration, those, because I, I don't get paid for that, I just do it, you know, and um, the advice I give to governments, uh, not just in Australia, but, you know, in, right around, and, you know, just general recognition of what I've been able to do. It's very humbling. My instinct was to reject it, you know, so no, yeah, I don't want it. They want to be a part of this. But, you know, I had some conversations with um, some of my closest friends and they explained to me the value of this in advocating for the things that I believe in. You know, and that, it, 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 it's such an honour lends... Uh, 
authority to what I yeah to my lobbying to my advocacy and a whole lot of other things that I do. So I feel again I feel very humbled and very privileged to be recognised by the the people of Australia. So Gregory, I've got time for one last question for you. What advice do you have? The listeners who are listening in today who may be experiencing homelessness or rough sleeping don't despair it's yeah yeah if you if you're close to that or experiencing that that's tough that really is a tough life and there are more people understanding that you know the the difficulties of that at the yeah in today's economic uh, well, it's very difficult. Uh, there is no quick solution, but don't give up. Whatever you do, don't give up. Make sure that your own mental health is being taken care of. Make sure your physical well-being is taken care of. Now, if those two things remain intact, you will get. You will come through. You will come through. It, it takes time, but if. If those two things are intact, it makes it just makes it that little bit easier to get through. Thank you so much, Gregory. It's been such a pleasure to have you on the podcast today. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you, River. Thank you very much. We would like to acknowledge the Widjibal Wyabal people of Bundjalung country as the traditional owners of this land. We would like to acknowledge and pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging. <laughs>